0: Hello, I'm Sue Nelson, and thanks for joining me on Create the Future, a podcast brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. It's not just scientists who can combine academia with a career in the media. And while Danielle George began her career as a scientist, an astrophysicist in this case, she quickly discovered the allure of of engineering. Today she's as likely to be hosting TV programs and podcasts as she is to be at the University of Manchester as professor of microwave communication engineering. In 2016, she was honored with an MBE and the Royal Academy of Engineering's Rook Award for the public promotion of engineering. And in October, she'll become President of the Institute of Engineering and Technology during its 150th anniversary year. She's also the founder of the world's first recycled robot orchestra.
1: So we'll have to start with this, Danielle. How did this come about? the Manchester Recycled Robot Orchestra came about as a an idea when Manchester was named European City of Science back in 2016 and there was lots of great ideas and initiatives to to engage people with science but I wanted to do something slightly different so you know there had been citizen science projects out there but I'd never heard of a citizen engineering project so so I wanted to try and engage the public and especially young children with engineering. And so I thought, well, what would sort of capture people's imagination? And, and so I thought, well, robots, cause everybody loves robots, don't they? Um, <laughs> <Absolutely>. and, uh, <laughs> and, and also music, you know, everyone, people love lots of different types of music, so, you know, what can we do with that? And so we sort of thought, right, well, we'll put those two things together, robot orchestra, but then we thought, right. What else would we quite like to do with it? Could we use upcycled materials or recycled materials to do it? So things that you might never have have thought would create music. um, Could you make them into a robot and then create some music from them? And we put this sort of call out. We had some sort of hackathons and makeathons where we had loads of different types of people. Sort of engineers, professional engineers, students, and then children as young as about five we all got together and said, right, let's create a, a robot orchestra out of everything. I mean, seriously, just whatever you could think of, we created or the children created robots from. So we had a, an amazing one um, working with engineers on um, old floppy drives. You remember floppy drives from oh, yes. <laughs> um, from computers? Um, so... The motors that are inside a, a floppy drive, we 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 got sixteen old floppy drives together, and we fed them a, a MIDI file, so a, a music digital interface file, and um, and they played music, and so we have this floppy drive, drive orchestra. We then had children of as young as five with tins of of like a Pringles crisp can. <laughs> given the children a a sort of a bag of bits if you like so a a little electronic board which was sort of the brain of the robot and then some little bits wires crocodile clips you know things like that little motors to play with Um, and they just said create whatever you want and so they came back with so many different things and and like I say it was everything from Pringle crisp cans with um if you imagine a Pringle's crisp can and then on this side of them two chopsticks so as arms and then sitting in front of the crisp can was um, like a a tin of beans and so the chopsticks would hit the, the top of the tin of beans like a drummer and so we had like drummers like that we had hexapod spiders that would normally go into nuclear reactors would play a piano for us instead you know we just had absolutely everything and everybody started donating materials that we could use so we had things from the Women's Institute we had Manchester Transport Network so many different things and then they played with the Halle Orchestra in Manchester at the um, the opening of the science festival <laughs> It was just incredible and you know to see the enthusiasm on the children's face when their robots that they have created are playing with this amazing orchestra the Halley Orchestra to to an audience of hundreds of famous scientists from around the world it was incredible and it's just gone from strength to strength it sounds brilliant. Where are your robot musicians now? Are they retired? Yes, yeah, some are retired because they don't they don't make the journeys very well when we when we take them around places. So they're all they're all sitting in in one room in in the University of Manchester at the moment. Um but we do try and take different bits of it to um to different festivals. Um if if I go maybe do some talks to the public or or in schools, I try and take at least little bits with me as well. Um so yeah, they're all still around but just in different phases of health. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> now what is your home
0: like? Because I've now got this vision that it might be filled with all sorts of unusual pieces of electronics (laughs) and instruments lying around the house or does your house give no inclination in terms of what you do I mean what's because engineers are often like that aren't they they just keep things just in case they're useful
1: yes yeah I'm very much like that so there'll be different parts of the house where the things that might be useful are kept so um, in the utility room or in the garage or in one of our spare rooms but I do have I have one of the um the robots that we use, they're called now robots and um, they're used as teaching robots for undergrad students at university. And I have one of them and my five-year-old daughter just loves it. She's called it Natalie, which is the name of my younger sister. Um, <laughs> and she she walks around with it and she talks to it. And of course, the robot talks back to her and she finds that fascinating. So, yeah, you, you see Natalie, the robot around the, the house quite often. <laughs> that's great. Now your title at the University of Manchester,
0: Professor of Microwave Communication Engineering, Mm. that's sort of unlike any title I've read before. What does it actually involve?
1: (laughs) I'll tell you what it doesn't involve is creating microwave ovens, which is what I'm sure my friends still think I do. (laughs) In the electromagnetic spectrum, there is an area just next to the radio waves, if you like, called microwaves, and they are slightly higher in In energy, slightly um, smaller wavelengths, higher in frequency and and so I work on radio telescopes. And trying to capture the naturally occurring radiation that is emitted in both the the radio and the microwave regions of the spectrum. And that radiation is emitted all over the universe. And so I work with a lot of other engineers and scientists to create new instruments for radio telescopes to try and capture that really distant cosmic light and this is
0: quite a good combination in terms of your how you got to do this because you didn't start off as an engineer and studying engineer you started off studying astrophysics
1: yeah that's right yeah so so i really enjoyed the the astronomy side um and you know i loved i loved math i loved physics and so it just seemed a really the right thing to to study at university and all throughout my undergrad degree I hadn't really realized at the time it was, it was just quite organic but but I was always choosing the very practical subjects you know when you had options for your for the units um, that you were taught I was always choosing the real practical ones because I wanted to help Build an instrument or um, design a different part of a telescope, or, you know, something like that, rather than take the data and and crunch that data or work on the theoretical side. So the and clues were there. Yes, indeed, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't really until after my my MSc, which I went to Jodrell Bank for, um, Jodrell Bank Observatory, which is part of the University of Manchester. And again, I wanted to do my dissertation for my master's as a practical thing. And so I worked with the engineers there. And um, I was just, I was so lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. And this amazing project came came across the books, so to speak. And um, it, it was to work on the Planck satellite. So Planck was a, an unmanned spacecraft to, to go and... Um, and look at the remnants of the Big Bang, the sort of oldest cosmic light in the universe, the cosmic microwave background. And so engineers and scientists at Jodrell Bank Observatory were were going to work on this and I and so I got to work as a junior engineer. So that was my sort of very first job as a junior engineer was to work on the on the Planck satellite. It was then I moved. It was so so good to have that background of astrophysics and, and give me that grounding from a from a physics point of view. And then I moved and and used that in the application of engineering. So where you actually based at the University of Manchester
0: in the city centre, or were you at that fabulous dish in the middle of the countryside, surrounded by sunflowers? Sometimes,
1: yes, I was. I was out there, yes, in the uh, in the fabulous countryside um, for a number of years. Yeah, I, I worked there from. Gosh, what was it? I worked there from nineteen ninety nine until two thousand and six. I've been there several times, which is why I know even about the flowers. You know, it's such a <laughs>
0: a fabulous place. So it's a mm. it's, um, telescope, and particularly now with the Blue Dot Festival that yes. brings together scientists and engineers and musicians and plays beneath that huge dish. It's um, yeah, inspiring, it's memorable. Isn't it it yeah. is inspiring. And so, working there as an engineer, working for the Planck spacecraft satellite did you contribute then to
1: the design and development of instruments as well yes so you know you've mentioned the the, the really big dish that's out at jodrell bank the the lovell telescope 76 meters in diameter so it's a, a beautiful big dish and within there there are several different receivers and so and the reason there are different ones is because we want to try and capture the different frequencies or the different wavelengths of the um of the radiation from all different parts of the universe and so they emit at at different frequencies so we want to try and capture all all of the information. Uh, So we have that on the Lovell telescope and then there's also the what we call the Mark II telescope out out at Jodrell and then there's a a link up in uh, across the UK which is called eMerlin and that sort of links up the different telescopes, radio telescopes across the UK and then they also link with um, sometimes ones in the US and sometimes ones in Europe, as well. And so I got to to work on several of those telescopes as well as the the satellite spacecrafts. So do you do industrial collaborations then as well as part of your work? Yeah. So n- not as much now. I've sort of concentrated a bit more back into the into the astronomy side of things and and working on two fabulous, big big projects for. For radio astronomy, but um, but there was a time where I wanted to take the technology that I'd done from uh, within radio astronomy and apply it to different areas. So, so I worked with farmers for agriculture, so precision agriculture. So, um, trying to bury small nodes in the ground and and wirelessly gather information from from those nodes about the soil so um, the nutrients uh, how much it needed to be irrigated etc and the idea about that was trying to save that precious resource of water and only use it in areas of the field that need irrigating and not just to go and you know water the whole um, field because that's what you think is needed and so you had it These nodes would be sort of peppered all the way around a field and then they'd be able to to um, talk in real time to um, the tractor that was going across. And then the the tractor or the farmer would then make a decision based on real time information whether to um, to irrigate that part of the field. So what made you decide you know, after working as a, an engineer,
0: you're working in astronomy, to do a PhD in electronic engineering? What what was it that, that sort of made you decide to take your studies further?
1: So it was when I was working out at Jodrell Bank Observatory, again on the, the Planck um, spacecraft mission, and You know, I was working with these amazing engineers and scientists and Jodrell Bank is part of the Department of Physics and Astronomy within the University of Manchester. And I was just chatting to one of the lecturers one day and and they said, oh, hey, you know, all that work you're doing, maybe you should just write it up as a as a Ph.D., I was like, oh yeah, that sounds really good. You know, I'd really quite like to do that. And so, my boss at the time was very, very supportive. Scientists out at Jodrell Bank Observatory were very supportive as well. And so, I wrote up my my research work on a couple of different projects for my PhD. So it was characterising low noise devices for radio astronomy applications. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's pretty comprehensive and understandable because most most people's PhD titles take about two minutes to read. <laughs> so, yes. So I would say that's possibly an early indication that you would end up involved in uh, communication. <laughs> Maybe, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you've, um, and since then, you've been involved with a, a telescope called SCAR, the um, mm. Square
1: Kilometre Array. Can you mm. explain how it works? Yes. So the Square Kilometre Array is, is still being built at the moment, but it um, is a network of hundreds and thousands of of antennas of different types so you might have like the dipoles you know like like the old antennas uh, that we had aerials that we had on top of our houses um, and then dishes as well and it is effectively one square kilometers worth of collecting area but it's spread across western Australia and in remote areas in South Africa And so when you join them all up, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of these things all dotted around. When you join them up, it's effectively having like a massive dish that would have a a collecting area of one square kilometre. And it will be 50 times more sensitive than any other radio instrument in the world. And it is a tremendous project to work on because there are so many engineering challenges uh, to work on. It, is a, it will be a fabulous science instrument when it's all built. Um, and whilst it's being built, it is a fabulous engineering um, instrument to, to work on. So many great challenges. So so I work on the some of the the front end receivers. So the amplification, you know, you need to amplify the the cosmic signals that are that are being observed. And you just want to amplify the signal. You don't want to amplify any of the noise that comes with it. So so anything to do with atmosphere or anything like that. You don't want to have any of that amplified. Just the this you know beautiful cosmic signal that you're trying to observe and so that's the part I work on which is a huge challenge because normally we just we'd be building um you know tens off you know maybe sometimes maybe one or two offs but you know maybe tens or 20 of these amplifiers and the SKA has just turned it on its head because we're now having to to think about how you um how you have the same performance from from the amplifiers but now you need to build them in a in a much more sort of commercial way if you like so so industry standard ways because you need hundreds of thousands possibly millions of them and so it's a fabulous challenge to work on and it means that that academia and industry are working a lot closer together which i think is a really positive thing as well
0: and what do you think you bring to it? What qualities do you think you have from, from your career so far that you, do you
1: think really help you when it comes to, to your work? I really love challenges. And I mean, I think that's probably true of any engineer and scientist. I love the challenges and I love the fact that they get me out of my comfort zone, and so I embrace the fact that it gets me out of comfort zone, and, and I I find that really helps me. I also dealt with failure quite a long time ago in a in a positive way. You know, I was at the beginning of my career, I was a lot more upset when things didn't work, and now I embrace failure because it's such a huge part of of being an engineer or a scientist. Is is all of the failures you have along the way to get to your success, and that so I've very much adopted the, the fail fast and learn approach um, and want to celebrate the failures as well. So, so part of when, when I have amazing opportunities to go out and, and chat to other people outside of my field, I always want to make sure that especially children and young children know that failing is a part of being an engineer or a scientist and not only is it being a part of it, it's essential to be a good engineer or scientist. You do need to fail along the way. Do you think engineers are better at that than scientists? Oh, that's a good question. We probably have more of it in a way because of the practicalities, you know, the practical elements of things. It's sometimes harder because if you're an engineer in a in a big company, there is a financial risk to that as well. So you can't fail too many times because of the, the sort of financial side of it um but i i think i think scientists and and engineers you know I, th- I think both people um you know if you're a scientist or an engineer i think you do embrace failure but i think the scientists who are on the more sort of practical side if you like they probably get to deal with it more than the theoretical mm-hmm. side
0: and you have always been keen to communicate what you do you know the robot orchestra wasn't wasn't the first you know you've you've presented a tv series nation of inventors you've delivered the royal institution's christmas lectures mm-hmm. so, so obviously you must think the communication of engineering
1: and science is is important oh it's so important it is so important and it's um it's essential on so many levels that that people outside of your field understand what you're doing, not just on a a personal level, but, you know, to try and communicate the the fabulous engineering and science that goes on. We need people to understand what it is because fundamentally we need people to be enthused about it as well. So, you know, to carry on the great work of of scientists and engineers in the future. And if young children aren't enthused and inspired, you know, they're going to choose a different path. And so we need to make sure that, There are enough people out there communicating the great work that engineers and scientists do in a hopefully compelling way and exciting way that that appeals to, to that young audience, which are the next generation of scientists and engineers.
0: Is this partly because obviously you didn't come to engineering until you had done your degree that wasn't in engineering and it was through, you know, being at Manchester and being with Jodrell Brank that you got into it and isn't engineering perhaps missing out a lot of people in the same way it just never actually catches them that it's too late they've gone off to study other subjects.
1: Yeah I think it's I mean, hopefully, you know, people people do follow a, a similar career path to me, and and hopefully, it shows that it's never too late, you know, to to change and to to move to a different sector. But I think, you know, there are there are so many similarities between science and engineering. Um, you know, you have to understand the fundamentals of science to um, to be an engineer, and I think perhaps some of the issue with engineering and you know people being turned off by it or not turned on by it at all is the perception that some people have of engineering and and so there are lots of people trying to change that perception and that sort of image of the hard hat um, and the boiler suit some engineers wear hard hats and boiler suits and that's great but quite a lot of people don't as well you know it's like the image of a scientist always wearing a, a white lab coat you know, lots of them do, and and that's great, but quite a lot of them don't too. So, so it's trying to get that sort of image of the different types of engineers that you have. And hopefully I just help a little bit doing that. Do you think there's you know a medium that works better than the other
0: when it comes to engineering because obviously people do podcasts they write about it they might do tv or radio and talks obviously ted talks or whatever ever what do you think is the best way to communicate or get people to really get engineering
1: i think it's probably all of those things really and the more you can get it into the the mainstream media if you like then then the better and then all of those other things can be amazing supporting materials if you want to go learn more things so you know we need to have books about engineers and and engineering right alongside you know other books on science or on you know, mainstream engineering in, in the way we have mainstream science as well. And on the television, you know, documentaries or programmes about technology and engineering. And we do now, we we certainly have a lot more than than we used to. So I think it is, it is changing for sure. And you do see a lot more younger people. You know, when I go into schools and, you know, just chat to, when I'm doing maybe... Um, uh Public talks and things when you chat to the children, they're much more clued up about engineering now than than was true maybe even just five years ago but certainly ten years ago. so I think it's really positive you know we're moving in the right direction that's good that's 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 really nice to
0: hear and and do you come up with as is often the case whenever I've interviewed not just women engineers, but women scientists as well, that they still have to overcome the perception that it's it's a profession for men, first and foremost, and for unusual women.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, I think there is that perception sometimes, but it's it's quite interesting. I think the perception comes from the older generation, and I include myself in that. And what I mean by that is when you're talking to really enthusiastic girls who want to go into engineering technology and then I might say, you know, well, I, I was the only girl in, in my class when I was at university doing astrophysics, would that be a problem? You know, if you were the only girl, how would you feel about that? And and a lot of um, young girls are sort of like, um, I haven't really thought about that. Like I, that would be sad if I was the only person, but but if I was, you know, we're still just all humans, so and so they don't have the, the stigma, attached in the same way that maybe the the older generation do. Again, I think that's a positive, you know, and if we can keep that, and and keep the, the mantra out there that there have always been fabulous women scientists and engineers. It's just we don't hear about them, and that that's the the thing. It isn't it isn't that they haven't been them, and so you know we have to, we are the first engineer or the first female engineer or first female scientist they've always been there it's just they're hidden a bit more and so i think we have to get get that across you know why have they been hidden and and let's pull their stories out and and get those stories told so people do know that female scientists and engineers have always been a part of history oh absolutely preaching to the converted with me um, <laughs> <laughs> um, with
0: the international women in engineering day coming up what have you got planned for this or has um has the pandemic slightly
1: changed things a little it's slightly changed things yes i mean i'll be doing a bit more chats over like on podcasts and and chats over like video conferencing and things like that my thing about engineering you know women in engineering and international women engineering days is i really want to get to a point quite quickly where we don't have these sort of days where we don't have to celebrate it in a different way because because it's just the norm, so why would you celebrate it? you know it's it's quite normal to have lots of women engineers and around the world, but we're not there yet and and I think that's why we need to to continue at the moment to to have a, a specific day in which we all celebrate it. but I'd really like to get you know in the next decade get to the point where you know, having one day that celebrates female engineers is just a a thing of the past because because they're everywhere. And why would you want to, you know, have one day that that you that you celebrate?
0: And how are you finding lockdown at the moment? Has it has it brought out your your inner let's get see what bits I've got around the house and and just put things together or are you more routine and obviously you said you have a a child. I mean it's affecting people in very different ways depending on their family circumstances and where they live. What's it been like for you?
1: Yeah so, so there have been a number of meetings, quite a lot of meetings every day um, for work um, and that 's completely understandable uh, you know i 'm the Vice dean for Teaching and Learning and Student Experience for the Faculty of Science and engineering, so so I need to make sure we are we are doing the best for our students at this time and to make sure that we can deliver our content online and assess people online etc so so there's a number of meetings about that but as you say I I have my daughter here as well she's five years old and the amount of cereal boxes and cartons and and things that we're we're now storing up because every day we're we're trying to build something she does like building robots so that's good we build robots we build palaces we built a robo dog you know just different things like that so um so I think she's a She's a, a budding engineer as well. She'll <laughs> <It sure laughs> have to be really, <laughs> won't <it>? she? <laughs> has there been any
0: engineering work for you that's relating to COVID-19 that has, has stood out where you've thought, whether it's related to incubators
1: or new devices or any form, that you've thought, oh, that's really clever? The 3D printing aspects of what's been happening, I, th- I think are really, really good. And it's it's showing how sort of rapid prototyping is has its place in something that's extremely serious as well so so yeah all of the 3d printing that that you've seen going on i i think is is amazing but i think just generally you know the way the way we've all got together you know the scientists and engineers collaborating so much around the world trying to whether that's trying to find the vaccine or whether that's trying to develop new protective clothing or you know whatever it is we Many people are all trying to work together for that common good, and I, I think that's a real positive that that we should take from from this crisis. Now, when you start as president of the Institution of
0: Engineering and Technology, I know you've been deputy um, up until now, so it's it's not a a massive change. But you know, now you have that power. Uh, when you get there, <laughs> do you do? You, are there any things that you think you know? What if I was president? I'd really like to do this.
1: Yeah, so when presidents come in for, for a year, uh, we all tend to have, uh, you know, one specific topic that we'd really like to try and drive forward. And and mine is very much about inspiring that next generation, making sure that the next generation are still curious. They know that they can fail and that's okay. And they are using their imagination and using their creativity and and becoming engineers and getting across that you can be really creative i mean that was the other thing about the robot orchestra what what that brought out was the common thing whether the people were musicians or or budding engineers was that creativity side and so it's absolutely key if you are creative you can be an engineer and so, trying to get that across to the next generation and and um, make sure they're inspired globally. Uh, with it will will be my sort of mantra for uh, for my presidency. Yeah, That sound very worthy,
0: Ames. And it, and if you could look back, I mean, you, you know, we heard how there was like hints there that there was an engineer inside you about choosing your modules at, uh, at university. <laughs> when when you were a kid, was there anything that you do did that looking back on you thought? Aha. Or is there anything you would like kids to get involved in like you know making robot orchestras or something is there something that you think actually this is what we could encourage people to do and it might just
1: set something
0: alight give a spark
1: yeah I think I think it's that curiosity and you know the the taking things apart and and putting them back together and that doesn't matter what it is you know it could be electronics which is sort of my bag that's what I really love doing but but it could be absolutely anything whether that you know you could be in the garden and be constructing or deconstructing something and and just making sure that people are curious and and they want to to do something with that curiosity and i mean that that was the key for me looking back on my childhood was so my parents were not were not engineers or scientists that's my, unusual <laughs> yeah so i mean my my dad was a car mechanic but um but not a, a qualified engineer but i mean he he did love taking things apart so there's there's that side of it and and i did used to help him help i guess in inverted commas at his garage uh, at the weekends you know trying to help him you know while he was under the bonnet i'm sure i was a, a huge help to him but uh but no so they they weren't sort of qualified engineers or, or scientists but what they did do was every time i asked that sort of why question which of course pretty much all children do which is brilliant you know why is the sky blue why is the grass green if they didn't know the answer they didn't just say oh for goodness sake Danielle just go away and you know ask someone else or or ask your teacher or something they said I don't know let's find out together and so we would find things out together and so my curiosity was always a positive thing. You know, it was never crushed in any way. Every time I asked something, we'd go and find something out. So, yeah, I think as parents or carers or teachers, making sure you you help children with their curiosity, I think, is the key thing. And that's so interesting as well, because one of the
0: positive things that's come out of lockdown, and I know it's, you know, it's mostly negative, but has been the creativity of people Mm. and particularly because so many parents have had to homeschool their children. It's been that coming together to do those sort of activities, where you create things, make things work together. And I think actually probably the parents have got as much out of that as the children.
1: Yes. Yeah, I agree. Yes. I I think there are... A lot of positives like you say of of the of the lockdown I mean for sure I, I feel like I'm spending more quality time with Elizabeth my daughter during the week than I would normally do because you know she's been at school all day and then maybe an after-school club or something by the time she gets home and I get home you know we are it's pretty much bath and bed time for her so so we have a lot more quality time and it's it's been really good for, for myself and my husband, even though we, we find it challenging, you know, trying to work full time and, and homeschool but to have that time with elizabeth and to change our working day so that we might just stop work during the day and then start again when elizabeth's gone to bed and having that flexibility so you can spend some quality time and go out and dig worms or you know create a, a latest masterpiece with you know loo rolls and cereal packets or something i think it's really really good
0: yeah so do i i must add though that i found an empty bottle fairy liquid by the washing machine the other day and I said what's this it's empty and I was told no no keep it because I'm going to build a rocket but that wasn't from my 19 year old son that was actually from my husband
1: (laughs) (laughs) brilliant (laughs) we're all curious exactly (laughs) exactly well
0: uh, Danielle George thank you very much uh, for joining me and sharing your um, your really fascinating uh, career
1: Uh, thank you so much